everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour, and we have got another really special one in store for y'all. We are traveling a long ways west. You thought going to New Jersey, talking about cranberries is kind of cool. We're going the complete opposite direction, still staying north. We're going to introduce these two that we're talking to here in a little bit. But before we go there, always got to thank Darren Wentz, Keith Axman. Awesome music. Going to keep playing. I hope to see you guys at a Grounding and Ice soon. I don't know if they're going. Are they coming? I don't know. Well, Darren will be there. Darren, with, oh, with, with Egg uh, Egg Central. Ah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be here. Maybe we can con you, Darren, and do another song for a <laughs> case of beer. Little Miller Light goes Diet, a long way. Diet Pepsi. Oh, yeah. Diet Pepsi, too. Oh, and some Pendleton. Yep. So thank you, guys. And then, of course, our sponsors, Farm QA, who are making digital tools for agronomy. I would say this. If you guys need something to organize your day, I would get in touch with our friend Ben Munson. Ben Munson is a wealth of knowledge as far as what Farm QA can do. I'm always thinking about the way to integrate and communicate from a consultant to a retail consultant to the farmer to custom applicators. Farm QA has something that can make your day streamlined and organize how you're communicating that information. So just go look up those guys on farmqa.com, Farm QA on Twitter, Ben Munson on Twitter. And as always, you look at the website or our show notes on the podcast, you can find Ben's contact info. Yeah. So let's say with that, it's time to podcast. Okay. Let's start. Let's crack these giant ass. So we got uh, gift beers that can, I picked them up at the Lake Region Roundup. Thanks to uh, Christy Sundin for delivering them and Austin Sundin's idea. I guess they were down in Kansas visiting some friends. So the uh, Tallgrass Tap House is uh so we're in north dakota podcasting drinking kansas beer and have guests on from pnw <laughs> so it, it it goes around a long circle here so we'll talk about that beer here a little later but let's let's introduce who we got on board with us here so we have kat salois and sam kimmel with us on the line and they are in more than just the pnw so the region that would consist of Washington State, Oregon State, and Idaho. There, I would say it's more localized than that. If you're just looking at those three states, I would say you guys are mostly in the Palouse region of the PNW. Am I correct in saying that? Yep, that's correct. The yes, good, the good, the good parts of Washington. Yeah, definitely Seattle. That's what I was going to go with. There's not killer whales right outside the window. <laughs> We're not. That's the important thing. Yeah, not Seattle. <laughs> About six hours due east of Seattle. So basically the whole state away from yeah. Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> no, which is a, you guys have such a diverse, extremely interesting area that you call home that farmers actually grow great crops on. And although there are some similarities to the crops that are grown in North Dakota, where they're like, hey, you grow wheat, we grow wheat. Your wheat's way different. Uh, it's like, hey, you can grow canola. Hey, we do that too. And pulse crops, whatever it is. But there's a lot of differences. And I think we're going to spend some time digging into that stuff. But uh, I, I think first, just guys, uh, introduce yourself and just give a little background, um, who you are, where you're from, anything you want to share. And as always, we just kind of go from there. Sure. Well, I'll butt in because that's, I think, part of my nature is <laughs> so... Um, I'm originally from the PNW and went to school in Washington State and then did graduate school in Montana State 
and then got this great idea that I was going to move out to the Midwest and experience Midwest egg and um, ended up taking a job with DuPont Pioneer and kind of funny story. I was really bad at geography and probably should get a, should have gotten better at that and was offered a job in Iowa and a job in Ohio. And it was like, which one pays more? We'll go with the job in Ohio. They've got to be like the same, right? <laughs> uh, and distinctly remember when I was moving out there, I got to Chicago. I was driving through Illinois. And then all of a sudden it said, and I was convinced that I was five minutes from where I was going to live the rest of my life, or at least the next year or so. And it said, welcome to Indiana. And I had completely forgotten about the entire state of Indiana. with <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> so um, had moved out to Ohio, took a job with DuPont Pioneer as a soybean breeder. And if you connected those dots, being from the PNW, that means I had never so much as seen a soybean when I took a job as a soybean breeder. But uh, the theory was an inbred was an inbred. And if I knew how to breed wheat, I could probably apply that to soybean. Um, that kind of worked out for the most part. Um, I had a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, it, I was really happy that I went and got that experience in the Midwest. The scale of egg is just a whole lot different in the Midwest. And it's great experience to be able to bring back. I think a lot of it is even just confidence in being able to say, um, okay, it isn't from the PNW, but how can I relate that? Or how is it different? That kind of thing. Um, anyways, we lived there for about 10 years. I'm married. I just actually had my 16th wedding anniversary. My husband we met at Washington State. He was a golf course superintendent forever and um, has now changed careers and actually now we both work in egg, which is kind of interesting. Um, anyways, about six years ago, uh, DuPont downsized a whole lot and I all of a sudden was without a job and I had a 12-month-old baby at the time and stars aligned and it was kind of a crazy story on how I even considered moving back to the Midwest, but uh, maybe we'll get into that later. It involved a car seat, lots of tears, and somebody saying, you need to call an old friend from high school. And uh, the McGregors are a family that I have literally known a majority of my life and got the opportunity to move back to the Midwest or move back to the PNW and everything just felt right. Um, my right now, the house that my husband and I live in, we have an eight-year-old daughter. My in-laws live in my backyard. My parents live like a solid, I don't know, two minutes down the road. So it's like all the ducks are close. Um, nothing's ever felt more like home. So it's really been interesting moving from this huge conglomerate of what was DuPont and now Forteva into a family-owned independent egg retailer that I now work for in McGregor's. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those differences later. But uh, so then moving from soy and corn and having all of that kind of wheat wasn't even a thought at that moment in time to relearning everything that goes into farming in the PNW. And really, uh, I'd say I'm a cereal specialist who knows a whole lot about pulse crops, um, forage crops, and I'm kind of learning more and more about the basin. But um, really, I'd say cereal, dryland, that kind of specialty. But that encompasses, let's say, Four million acres across the PNW, that dry land um, kind of cereal pulse type rotation. So that that was probably a long introduction to. Um, uh, I've been in the industry about 20 years as far as farming, um, either in the breeding aspect or egg retail, and um, yeah, that that's kind of my story in a nutshell. So so you said uh, McGregor and retail. Maybe just explain just a little more about. 
what it is you exactly do for these guys and and is it a this is like an independent retail business or is it a cooperative or is it a national retail thing because i've never heard of mcgregor oh my gosh i've tried no just kidding (laughs) um yeah that's super fair so mcgregor's is an independent family-owned egg retailer um, if you look at, if you follow the Crop Life 100, McGregor's is generally in the top 15, top 20 of the largest egg retailers in the nation, or generally the largest with only a three-state footprint. So the McGregor's is really solely for, focused in the inland Northwest. And when I say inland, that is the ground in between the Cascades and the Rockies, between the Canadian border and let's say halfway through Oregon until you get into that irrigated market again. So it's a whole lot of Washington a little bit of Oregon, a little bit of Idaho is encompassed in that. Um, all in, the company is about 325 employees, which makes us, I'd say, solid medium-sized. <laughs> uh, not necessarily small, but um, yeah, and completely family-owned. The fourth generation is currently president. The board of directors is a group that gets together that all still has the McGregor name. It's uh, pretty interesting from that regard. Very interesting. Oh, it's a cool story. Well, I'll go. I'll yeah. be short. Probably. <laughs> what? I don't have as long of a story, at least. But uh, it's same interesting kind of international thing. story, though. Yeah. Most people that leave the PNW end up coming back to the PNW. That thing. That's very true. Very true. So I grew up in uh, northern Idaho on a on a family farm, and like most kids, when you get to high school and above age, your grandpa tells you to leave and go do something different for a while. And so I joined the military, spent six years, bounced around the, in the Navy as a hospital corpsman, did my darndest to get away from ag in any way, shape, and form I could, and, and uh, none, wanted nothing more than to come back and get into ag again. So started doing college kind of online as I was finishing the military, finished at Walla Walla, um, and then moved back and started working for a greater company about seven years ago probably yeah, we started really similar times. and i started within three or four months of each other um and so i am an account manager or an agronomist for the mcgregor company so i cover uh, a local region here in the palouse kind of um the southeastern corner of washington in general terms but a decent portion of, of the southeastern corner of the state work with about 23 growers and and uh love working for the company and um, it is a unique opportunity to work for this company, being independent and being so specialized to our specific region. But thanks for having us on, Kyle, and you guys, and wherever you are, and somewhere <laughs> colder than here. We're a hell of a lot colder than you guys. I can <laughs> promise you that. <laughs> yep. As as our pickups are currently getting snowed in at the college. Yes, they are. are. Yeah, I think three and snowing here. I was going to say, but it was five. When I woke up, what was it, Saturday morning? Negative one air temperature. Yeah, that's not good. Not good. Rich, <laughs> really? here. Are you kidding me? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, the coldest I've ever been in my life, I think, was in Oregon on the coast. And it was like those temps. And with the humidity and the moisture coming off the ocean, I thought I was going to die. I've never yep. been that cold in my life. <laughs> Where were you again? We were out. We went on a fishing trip. We did some... Uh, now, she wants to know how she wants to know how you said Oregon. Okay. <laughs> I, I heard it earlier. You, I, I, you I heard a, it right I, the first time. Come on, Kat. Got a got a good friend of ours. Matter of fact, Lewis, that was on the last one from this this past week. He's from Oregon. That's that's how he always tells me he says it's gun. 
at the end. So I don't know if that's how everyone says it there, but he's, I, I, I say gone sometimes and he's out. No, no, that's not how you say that. <laughs> Didn't mean to pick on you, but I thought it was cute. I've known enough Midwesterners not to complain about cold weather because I usually just give an earful. <laughs> <laughs> we got nothing else to do but complain to other people who don't know how cold it is here. <laughs> However, I was just having this argument, and you guys are probably the same. This is self-induced. This is the time of year where I start asking myself, why do I live here again? Like, I chose yes. this. Go back. What the heck was I thinking? <laughs> but at the time I traveled out there, and I can't remember what year that was, it was... Uh, I think January uh, time frame. We came out. Um, I know we 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 flew in Seattle, ran a car, came down, and you were speaking, Cat. We was like a research forum or something like that. And I, I there was there was so many interesting things to see. It was such a d- different ag than I was used to. I'd never been in the Palouse before. I don't think I kept my eyes on the road at all because there was too much to see, and it was. It was just unbelievably incredible. I, I could have spent a week out there and you could have showed me stuff that I would never imagine. I mean, it's like anything else. Somebody can tell you, but until you go there and see it, taste it, smell it, then you don't really know. Yeah. If you're a farming junkie, this is a place that you have to come to, right? Like I know that yep. this is speaking among friends that we would probably go to Hawaii and go on a farm tour because we're that interested in the agriculture yeah. in different spaces, right? Done it. But my wife forget. Right. But you, <laughs> we're gonna go to a coffee plantation. But yeah, it is one of those spaces that's just so unique. Um, I mean, I feel like I've gone Sam Sam's traveled quite a bit internationally. I feel like I've seen quite a bit of the US and just nothing's like it. Um, it's a really interesting space from the weather perspective, from the topography perspective. I mean, not getting into, I feel, so it's probably worth noting that Alex McGregor, who was the president before current president Ian, um, is a PhD history professor who also ran an egg retailer, right? So not trained in agronomy, not trained in business. He has a PhD in history. So you kind of like pick up these like historic facts, right? <laughs> so the, the PNW was formed because you all had this huge lake over your state in geographic prehistoric times. And so we got all the good topsoil from the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming that actually deposited on the PNW. So it made these ripple effects. So imagine the ripples that you see in sand or a river bottom but magnified into 500 foot hills. That's what we farm. Yeah, that's that's actually a great way to explain it. I was always wondering why those hills are formed like that because you guys have pretty deep, dark soils too, don't you? In, in giant hills and ripples and all that? Yes, yeah. So we were talking earlier about even um, the weather patterns, right? So Sam and I will refer to dryland egg, which, for us means non-irrigated. If you see the topography, it's a duh, like try putting a pivot on this ground. <laughs> um, but the, the mountains cause this rain shadow effect, right? So right up against the Cascades, you'll get four inches of rain. And right up against the Rockies, you can see if you look on Google Earth, right where we start getting more than 20 inches of rain, because you'll start seeing conifer trees in the landscape, right? So just to the east of Moscow, Idaho, which is I don't know, as the crow flies 15 miles from here, mm-hmm. they get enough rain that they start coming into heavily forested ground that looks like, you know, a conifer forest. 
where we're in farm ground with virtually no trees whatsoever. Um, so we get this rainfall between, let's say, four inches and 22 inches, but a majority of that happens during the winter. So November, December, January, February, 20% of, or 70% of the rainfall that we'll get for the entire year happens in those four months. So you can quickly do the math on how much rain we actually get when we need it during fall and spring. And just, just to explain to everyone listening, the crop mix that you guys have out there, I, I know we've talked about wheat some, but it's not just only wheat, right? There's more than that. Yeah, well, Sam has a pretty diverse, I think you've got a pretty good- Yeah, we, we, winter wheat specifically being king, for the for the area, for the most part, but we do grow a fair number of pulse crops, garbanzo beans, um, peas, and lentils, all dry for the most part until you're getting down into the irrigated basins. Um, more recently, in the last decade, canola, spring canola, some fall canola, um, and that's kind of it. A lot of our crop choices and rotations are based on what we can rotate around fall wheat winter wheat uh, for the most part, but we, we have been growing more crops mainly because we're fighting more weed problems rather than what the market's doing. I would agree with that. The basin. So uh, the center part of the state is so dry that they're irrigated and the Columbia river system feeds that irrigation. That area of the state is incredibly diverse and they grow everything from potatoes and onions to mitten patchouli. Um, and then the west side of the state encompasses a completely different set of crops that really focus around cane, like cane berries um, and orchards. But the McGregor Company doesn't cover a whole lot of the tree and vine section, section of egg. We do have some hops Ooh, more recently. True. That is true. We are growing some hops. So You grow you grow dryland hops? They sure. or, or is it irrigated? Well, it's both. Irrigated by God for the most part. <laughs> yes. It's drip irrigated. Like they do put drip there, There's some supplemental drip, I want to say, but you get up into the very northern part of Idaho, a town called Bonners Ferry. Yeah. Yep. In that big valley, there's, I think, one of the largest hop producers in the nation, maybe the world. Correct. Well, between them and then Yakima has yeah. the rest of it, pretty much. You start doing the math on hops, Washington State and Idaho together produce a decent number of hops, but I, I can't speak specifically to that crop much. I'd like to. Yeah, there's probably <laughs> 2,500 acres in the Kootenai Valley. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know we just talked to uh, Christy Apple a few weeks back, and and she's an agronomist in Michigan, and she actually works with hops producers in Michigan with, with their production, but she always kind of circled back and said, hey, what I do is such a small amount, and, and the hops that we produce here maybe equates to a couple hundred acres or a few hundred acres. She goes... The bulk, I mean, it's the Pacific Northwest. It's it's Idaho and Washington and Oregon. That's that that's where it all is. It that's where everyone's for the most part sourcing the hops they use. And of course, you know, we like drinking local craft brew and all that. And so hops are grown in just about every state. Even North Dakota has some hops. Maybe you guys should go for the barley component of the beer, right? We 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 take pride in our barley part of the beer more so than hops that's for sure <laughs> we could just do it all within about 100 miles but that that stop i had out there was really cool because uh the place we stopped they had their own their own brand their own tap for the their their restaurant and they said, oh, yeah this is just kind of how it is every place you go it's it's totally different 
man, I, I got I to schedule more time on here. Oh, good, <laughs> good beers. Oh, it was so fun. And to drive by some of those places and see the different, man, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And now I've read about it and I've had other people told me about it, but at that time of the year to, to not have snow and still have active egg. Yeah. Basically that was, that was very unique. Well, and I think um, it was kind of, so I think, I'm pretty sure you, you flew into Spokane and we're about a mile or an hour and a half south of Spokane. So yep. you drive through the heart of the Palouse. The other thing I was going to bring up to Sam is I'm pretty sure Jason came out here to talk on one of the Fullier, the very first Fullier nutrition segments that we had. Oh, really? Yeah. So Sam is actually... what. So my job, um, I run the research division for the company. So the company actually has their own research program and we own a farm, 350 acres that are dedicated to research. That's it. Um, the thing that's, I don't know of a whole lot of egg. I mean, there's not a whole lot of egg retail that has their own research and there's certainly not a whole lot of independent that does their own. And then on top of that, 350 acres. That's just the farm that we happen to own. That, oh, that's that's just your farm. So there, so obviously you have research outside of that. Then. Correct. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Let's say thirty or forty percent of the quote research plots that we do every year are on the farm, and the rest are scattered throughout the region with uh, cow managers like Sam. Um, but one of the the great things about independent is we like. So if you look at my what are those called? Performance reviews? Something like that. Okay. I swear I've had at least one. <laughs> um, so if you look at my job title or job uh, description, it literally says, understand problems of Pacific Northwest, solve problems of Pacific Northwest. So think about that for a second, that your job is to understand problems and solve problems. Like that's number one goal. <laughs> Right. So um, the direction that I get to take any one year for the research program literally is that like that is the direction I'm given is solve the problems. Um, so we can take that a bazillion different directions. And the thing that's really cool is I probably work with about 90 different suppliers. And because we're independent, we can pick and choose which of those 90 suppliers we choose to do business with, which ones have products that actually solve a problem that we have in the Pacific Northwest, um, which those problems are different. Like. I know, I know everything in egg says we are unique and different, but love it. we are, we are unique and different. <laughs> keep Portland weird. Keep, keep the PNW weird. <laughs> so circling back, you said Jason was there during kind of a foliar nutrition type of conversation. So, so explain kind of how you guys focus on fertility. Yeah. So it, the reason I was kind of reminiscing about Jason was the start of something that felt you know how you don't realize things are big at the time and then it ends up being this a pretty big difference um and the reason it's interesting for sam is sam is actually one of the account managers the research program works really closely with our account managers um i mean they are boots on the ground sam gets to see forty thousand acres mm -hmm. and i get to see 300 so if i rely on 40 of sam's i get to see a whole lot of acres um so he helps identify some of those problems and he actually developed one of our very really successful in-house product. And part of that stemmed off a little bit of that conversation that Jason had. So you talk about like connecting these parts, right? Mm -hmm. So you get these ideas from the Midwest, you get these ideas from research, you get these ideas from independent and you kind of start putting those pieces together. 
But yeah, Jason came out for part of an agronomic training that we have in-house. Um, so part of my job is uh, being able to supply some agronomic training for the account managers. Hopefully, Jason will remember, and I think that this group of account managers that McGregor's has, it's a really fun group to talk to because they are super engaged, and you can be really nerdy and really technical, and they will ask for more. And I fit both of those. <laughs> they were they were super they were into it it was like uh yeah. i don't know sometimes meetings people aren't they're just kind of there and whatever that was not you had to be on your game and uh i don't remember what i said or went through but i if i remember right then i got to sit in the audience and listen to you guys and i think you were doing some foliar boron on wheat at anthesis time and you're trying to figure out different formulations of of boron uh, and, and other things that you were going through. And all I could think of was, I don't know any other people that are doing this intensive or this amount of research. I've never seen this before. And here I am at a retailer, right? This, this should be like national major research foundation type stuff. That was really cool that I thought is, and, and I, and I, 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 that was what stuck in my head. Yeah, it was. It's, yeah, he was part of that the Maxin discussion. Yeah, I remember. I remember now. Um, yeah, that that was a really. I remember that was like kind of our kickoff to really diving deep. And we've been toying with this foliar nutrition idea for decades. Decades. Yeah, a long time. <laughs> long is, time, but we had not at, at that point hadn't really felt like we'd put our thumb on anything specific to our region. And that was kind of the kickoff to really diving into that since then it's been a pretty cool journey on on what we can do and specifically fall wheat and spring wheat um foliar nutrition wise to to boost our yields in this area yeah it's probably worth uh i mean we know but it's probably worth for the rest of the podcast audience that when when sam's talking about successful winter weeds in a majority of his region it's some of the best winter wheat in the nation Right. So last year, let's, let's disregard 2021 a little bit. So 2021, we saw there's two things that happened. Um, we had an incredibly dry. Well, it, when you really start piecing into it, we had a dry fall, which for us is bad. Uh, and we had parts of Sam's region had less than an inch of rain in April, May, June and July. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm exactly. No, no. Yeah. So very limited rainfall. The other problem we had is um, incredibly high heat uh, and specifically incredibly high heat during grain fill uh, for our winter wheat crop. So usually the PNW, we're above, we're right at the 49th parallel. We have pretty mild Junes. It's, I mean, I think the June season in the PNW is probably some of the best weather period ever. Um, It's usually, let's say a 70 degree daily high. And our average daily high in June this year was 87 degrees. So we just skyrocketed and we had 10 days above 100 degrees, which is really unheard of for our region in June that happened starting the 19th of June. So 10 days between the night, the 20 or the 19th and the 29th of June, we were above 100 degree daily high, um, which equals a complete stop to grain fill. So uh, normally, normally, our region would have well above 100 bushel winter wheat this year. Shoot, it was everywhere from 15 bushels. I had, to- yeah, I think my spread was uh, 11 bushel fall wheat to uh, 
90, I think my highest was 91 bushel fall wheat. And so in 2020, it was? Uh, nothing lower than 75. Up yeah. to? Up to uh, 200. Up to 197. Yeah. So this is the cool thing that mm-hmm. fascinates me about your guys' area, the growing wheat, because I know you said it, Cap, but you guys are probably one of the highest yielding wheat regions in the entire country. Yeah. And and then it's also uh, farming wise, probably one of the most dangerous places to be a farmer <laughs> too. Uh, just the landscape maybe isn't as forgiving. And so, you know, if we're here in North Dakota and we talk about hills, we think about eroded like slopes and lower organic matter. Usually Air- those yeah. are, yeah, it's not our good producing areas. Well, your guys' hills, like you said, go up for 500 feet in elevation. So your hills go forever. Your your entire, well, the entire field could be a hill. It could just yeah. be a hill slope. How do you put the steepness of the hill into perspective? Um, when I when I drove there and I'm going down, leaving Spokane, heading down to your place, and I don't know the town, but they had an implement dealership there, and they had a they had a, a combine with the tilted header. I knew I wasn't in North Dakota anymore. <laughs> yeah. So for everyone listening, I guess that'd be the best way to explain it. If, if you've ever seen the harvest equipment, they have the uh, the auto leveling hydraulics in them where the combine as it's traveling around the contour of a field looks like the axle is is uh, kind of paralleling the ground, but the combine sits level. And so one tire may be, you know, if you're looking at your drive tires in a combine, one tire may be 10 feet or 15 feet in elevation below the other. <laughs> Maybe it's not quite that extreme. but it can. Yeah, it, it can be. Just for reference, I, I can't really give you a great perspective because I just grew up with it, but there's I'm on my third four wheeler from rolling and totaling it. Seriously. Um, there's and just, the guy before you. Yeah. <laughs> you. It's not a dangerous place to farm. I don't think that's fair. But we just have to spend a little bit more money on our equipment. Okay. Well, bump the brakes here for a yeah. second. Your your third four wheeler scouting from. That. <laughs> no. So what the hell? Okay. <laughs> Some of it were user error. All right. <laughs> Just <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're getting a little, it's getting clearer now. Okay, okay. <laughs> you did work for the company in his 20s. <laughs> yeah. The uh no, you can you can't just you can't just hop in a pickup out here and, and look at a field. You you have to you have to drive something four-wheel drive, specifically a four-wheeler, and you and you do have to be careful. But they're not uh there's many acres in our region that we don't farm that are too steep, and that's the is usually just because you can't walk it. If you can walk it, we farm it yeah. for the most part. You put cows on the things. Yeah, if you can put cows it. on it, we can we can put cows on it. If you can't put cows on it and grow a little wheat, we'll grow a little wheat, figure out how to farm it. But if your leveler quits during harvest, you're done cutting for the day kind of ground. Yeah. It, I mean, the levelers will go to 45%. So I think so. If you think about when Kyle was explaining the tire above the tire, so you think about get out your protractor and 90 degrees is straight up and down. 45 degrees is halfway through, right? So those levelers will take that axle to 45 degrees and roll that combine completely straight. And that's where, and then once we hit the maximum, then you kind of just start playing the contour. But it's still, still clean grain. That like clean the crazy grain. thing is not the fact that you can drive a combine over it. You can, your sieves level and your header levels and you can feed 190 bushel wheat through it, clean it pretty darn good. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, they're running 45 foot draper headers that are <laughs> t- <laughs> touching both ends of wheat on 
each side. So if you do that math, right? So now you're taking, like, it's fairly incredible that they can keep that in grain. It, it's wild to me. How does how does planting equipment or spraying equipment, if everyone can recognize that you have levelers in the combine, but that can't be the only thing that that's unique to your farming region. Planting and, and spraying and fertilizing have to be somewhat unique in themselves too, not? Not really equipment wise. I mean, fertilizer wise, fertilizer wise, maybe a little bit, you know, we don't, we don't have a ton of AV lines we can throw on this ground out here. So we're, we're contour farming most of it, but the, a lot of the, a lot of the drilling and seeding equipment is similar to what you guys would have. We do a lot of double disc, a fair amount of no-till. We probably can't get as big of a drill behind a quad track as you guys can just because okay. we are, drill. but it's not uncommon to pull a 51 foot, yeah. you know, double disc drill. Well, it's pretty, pretty much on par with the equipment we run. I mean, sure. We've got, there's, there's a handful of 60 foot drills out here, but I would say your, your 42 foot to 50 foot drill is the most common for us. Yeah. I think our soil lends itself to being, you know, it holds up pretty well for the most part, especially if we do get some moisture and we've got really rich, strong, silty soils that don't fall apart too bad for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, it can get a little dry and a little silty and a little sandy and, and get a little harder to see those hills. But for the most part, it holds up pretty good and you just go slow and try not to bury that back rank of, of openers. Probably some of the differences I would assume would be in fertilizer and spraying. So fertilizer, um, do you guys use a decent amount of dry or? It's every year it's more and more dry. Okay. Well, that's something that our region does not, does very little of. Um, and part of it's just practicality. Trying to get a prill to stick to the side of a 45% grade isn't going to happen. Uh, when I first moved back, I just assumed that the floater could drive faster. That was a poor assumption. <laughs> Uh, so there's not a whole lot of surface applied dry that goes on. We do a whole lot that is shank below ground. And then spraying wise, we probably use more aerial than most regions. Okay. That, so that's, I, what, that's what I was going to ask on a, on a crop protection or a liquid spraying. Because I, I think uh, a lot of our market has moved to a self-propelled sprayer that's at least 100 foot in width. A lot of farms have even moved to the 120 foot widths to the more of the commercial size sprayers. And, and as farms have grown, there's some of the bigger ones. Now, a lot of them run multiples of those, but I, I'm trying to picture your guys' landscape in a 120 foot spray boom, and then trying to be effective on keeping a proper boom height <laughs> to get things done on that, that, that I know with our little bit of elevation compared to your guys is that we have a tough time maintaining a proper boom height with just let's call it 20 to 30 feet of elevation change as you have like little knolls and hills rolling across the field i can't imagine when you have just a 45 degree hill slope i think you would probably cringe a little bit (laughs) (laughs) a little (laughs) let's just say i have one we're we're happy with what we can get right so we run i would say on average now it's changed a lot equipment wise but most of our custom spray operators are running 120, like rogators with 120 foot booms. Okay. And you, you got to slow down when you come into a draw because both tips of each boom are touching the other hillside. And then you go into manual or something and, and adjust it. But we do have some, uh, you got to slow down to get the spray to hit the ground in a few spots. You're on top of a ridge and 
each side of your boom is yeah. 80 feet <laughs> or 35, whatever feet above the ground. Yeah. And just even the auto leveling booms, once they come up above the ground, right, you'll come like this before they come back down. And yeah, yeah. You, yeah. But it's amazing what they've done with those, with those custom spray applicators, or just the self-propelled sprayers. They, you know, for years, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years ago, Case was trying to push all those out here and, and we just couldn't get them to climb a hill. And yeah. since then they've developed, you know, four wheel drives with, with truck transmissions in them and lower gears. And we can pretty much AB a lot of this ground with those ag trucks and rogators and things like that and do a pretty good job. So we do a fair amount um, with our like pull behind sprayers still, but I'd say the majority is self-propelled, mm-hmm. self-propelled big ag trucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes a little bit tough. Um, I'd say the early spring of the year and the later parts of the year. So like, let's think about something like canola, right? You have this huge rosette, you can get out and get your roundup on, but any other applications, you just think about the traction that you lose trying to go across that kind of biomass. And it's really tough for those self-propelled to physically get enough traction to cover a crop like canola. So that's where a lot of the aerial spray comes into play. Uh, same thing can go for like wheat at flood leaf timing. Um, Jason was saying we don't have a whole lot of head scab. That is true. I don't know that we have ever made a head scab application, but at flood leaf, same thing, right? Just a lot of biomass that gets underneath those tires. So I've got multiple thoughts going on here, but I'm going to stick to the, the equipment and the power needed to go up hills. I'm understanding that. But the airplanes, like we, we've talked to a couple of aerial applicators and it's super fun to listen to them just kind of go through the thought process they need to go through as far as uh, how much power they need to use, how much lift they need to, to bank into a new turn and make it into a new pass. But holy crap, to run like a zero to 500 foot climb spraying up a hill. I mean, that's a, I bet you that that's a whole different skill set that those aerial applicators have too. They sound like a necessity for you guys, but that, that's a whole other topic in itself. Just to, to hear an aerial applicator kind of talk about how they manage through the kind of power they need to just run up and down the hills of the Palouse. You guys, yeah. You guys have rocks, rock piles? You get further east into northern Idaho, we do, we do have a little bit, but no, for the most part, it's just pretty deep, deep soil and straight soil. But I mean, you have a hill, a mountain. So instead of a rock pile, you have, you know, a rock face. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking of your, your, just the field, the layout is such an obstacle as other, other things, because that's probably one of our, you know, shelter belts, uh, rock piles, uh, power lines, sloughs, power lines, that type of thing. And uh, just to hear this is, is very unique, I guess. We do have like, we do have power lines, but aside from that, I mean, like from an aerial applicator standpoint, I work with several of them and they, I don't know if they're all crazy, but <laughs> I think it's a fair generalization. I'm not dissing ag pilots. I love them, but a lot of our ag pilots will go to the Midwest after our season is over. And I think it's just to chill out. Probably. Well, <laughs> <we> have- <laughs> yeah. There are two that run night vision as well. Yeah. Two that run therm or night vision. Yeah. Gray vision. Yeah. Yeah. Really. It's wild when you're in an area and I've got, like several pictures, it's it's still not, I don't know, it's, okay, so imagine that you're scouting a field, so your feet are on the ground, and the plane is flying below you. Okay. So can you, can you imagine this? They yep, are, yep, I'm, I'm in, 
working below you. Am I still on the four wheeler? I haven't rolled yet, or is that a different story? <laughs> First, I thought you were talking about three wheelers because that's the that way. You remember the old Hondas? The oh tires, yeah, the big tires. Those were so easy to roll. I'm like, no, my four wheeler. I'm like, we get stuck. That's all. You know the thing. You can get ah, oh, this is a shortcut. I can get through here, and then no, you can't do it. But roll in total. No, I, I that is not in my that is not in my business plan, Sam. That does not work for rock and roll agronomy. Or are you teaching your kids that like when you're driving a four wheeler on a hill, we do not contour these things, we go straight downhill. Yeah, or if you are gonna contour, just get off and stand on one side of the four wheeler so it doesn't tip over. <laughs> we went from uh, originally a lot of a lot of the scouting guys and agronomists around here ran those fat cats. And I remember oh, yeah. I don't know if you the Honda Fat Cats. I still have one, but everybody ran one of those, and they were great out here. Those big fat tires and yep, climb hills and stuff. So I still use that a fair amount. No kidding. Late season, if I just don't want to crunch a bunch of weed over. Yeah, and drones. Drones have made a big impact. I think for me, just being able to scout dog fennel and stuff and some back draws without having to drive over. You can't just hike up the hill. You could. But the older I get, the less I want to. Oh, give me a really <laughs> get closer to forty, dude. <laughs> so back in back in your conversation, you talked about your rotation and your crops, and you were changing not so much on markets but on weeds. What what is what is that? I mean, we have kind of our weeds, but what is what is dictating that for you guys? I think now we kind of get real specific to where Cat and I work mostly but italian ryegrass is probably number one for our region and that's been oh it's been a struggle for coming on a decade probably but within the last five or six years a really big problem um and then more recently and probably eventually a bigger problem is downy brome um or just the brome species in general cheatgrass um really fighting those in fall wheat yeah so similar to say the Palmer issue in soybean, where it's a broadleaf and a broadleaf, the grasses and a grass is a big issue. And um, for a lot of the dryland region in the PNW, grass on grass on grass is the rotation. Um, meaning we do winter wheat, spring wheat, and some kind of fallow. So fallow would be a scenario where we're trying to quote unquote conserve moisture and either set a dust mulch or use what's called a chemical or herbicide fallow, meaning that we just let the land go uh, residue stands, no tillage, and use chemistry to control the weeds in that area. This is all around moisture conservation. Um, Sam's area really sits, I think you straddle kind of right on that moisture line. So usually it's considered, let's say 16 inch rainfall and under will fallow over 16 inch rainfall typically does continuous crop. So some kind of winter wheat, spring wheat, and now we're bringing, say, pulse crops or canola or something into that rotation. Well, this grass on grass on grass on grass and considering fallow rotation has led to quite a few issues. Um, I had to chuckle a little bit coming back from the Midwest when Roundup was the culprit to all these herbicide-resistant problems. Yeah, we'll try knocking out the entire group two, the entire group twos, to all your grassy weeds in a grassy crop and seeing how many options you have in the end, right? We're unfortunately running into that same issue. Downy brome giving us some heartburn, but there, there's other grass weeds for us. Italian ryegrass is not a North Dakota issue, but I know as you get farther south into the, your southern plains, I know that that's more of an issue for them. 
What are the grassy weeds that are in North Dakota? Downy brome is one of them, uh, predominantly for those of us further west that have no-till. As you move further east into Jason's area, I would say the dominant one is wild oats still, but then we all deal with your green and yellow foxtail and then barnyard grass some. But I would say number one on the list, probably wild oats east, downy brome west, and then we all deal with green and yellow foxtail. And my wild oats are group one and group two resistant. Yep. Yeah. We do have some. So is when you said Italian ryegrass, the first thing that pops in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I hear that weed and I, and I, is it glyphosate resistant, that weed? And maybe not, I'm not sure. But where does, where in that rotation and your harvest, does glyphosate become a part of your management strategy? Or I'm just trying to get that in my picture if that's part of your plan. No, I think that's where that's where canola has moved in slightly. Roundup ready canola being our last resort in some way to re- control Italian, Italian ryegrass. So we're dealing with mostly group two and group one resistance in Italian ryegrass. And it's mainly in the higher rainfall mm-hmm. regions. We don't see it do super well in the drier country, but they said that about oats about yeah. 25 years ago. And we have oats in the dry country now. So we're uh, we're mainly combating Italian ryegrass with Roundup. Yeah, we we have not run into a whole lot of glyphosate resistant Italian rye yet. Knock on wood. We don't have. A, I would say in general we don't have a ton of glyphosate resistant weeds in our area, but we also don't have glyphosate resistant crops in our area. So we can only use Roundup is say a pre harvest or a, a pre plant burn down or a post harvest aid or something of this nature. Uh, where we can also use iron. No, where we run into glyphosate resistant issues is where Kat was talking to earlier is, is in our chemical fallow rotation, mainly in the, in the drier countries where we run that third year rotation as a fallow, we're putting, you know, up to five applications of Roundup in season on it. And so Russian thistle, a little kosher, but mainly Russian thistle, um, mare's tail yep. being our glyphosate resistant broad leaves moving in pretty hard. Russian thistle has been bad for a long time, but like she said, it's because we don't grow a lot of Roundup resistant crop that we don't have a lot of Roundup resistant grassy weeds. Um, So we're doing our best to stay out in front of that. No, we're we're way different areas and we've got a giant mountain range in between us, but your same group one and group two resistant grass issues exist for us too. We've got farmers right on the North Dakota, South Dakota border that deal with group one and group two resistance, but predominantly that's in green and yellow foxtail where that's giving us the most issues. And it's because either we're doing wheat and durum, wheat and durum, wheat and durum, or, or yeah, that's the rotation. <laughs> or you have wheat durum and wheat again, and then maybe a pulse crop because insurance won't let you do pulses any more than that. You know, you need two or three years of, of a grass crop in between, but, but really the mode of action, you know, they'll, they'll keep using the same exact mode of action, the same exact family within that mode of action, even though the names of the products are different. And that's where we've gotten in trouble. So I'm curious um, what some farmers have done here and, and most are pretty resistant to it because one, it costs a lot more money. Two is it's, it's unconventional versus what everyone else does, but for the farms that have lost group one and group two resistance, that means we lost our post options. Now we have to rely on residual 
outside of rotation because the canola thing, that's exactly why some guys are growing canola in those areas. Canola was more dominantly a Jason's area thing. And then where I currently live in the Southwest part of North Dakota, we're, we're the bigger area outside of the Northeast part of North Dakota. It's weird. It's opposite. They, they go, Oh, we grow great canola. We have this cool kind of a more mild environment in the Southwest part of North Dakota definitely is on average 15 degrees warmer any given time of the year, a lot drier, but they still produce great canola. And then the rest of the areas, they didn't produce a lot. Well, now those areas are because of their tight rotations and issues. But anyways, where I was going with this is we're starting to see more group threes. So like some guys are using Prowl, uh, some more group 15s like Anthem or Zidua. They're they're adding those. I, I mean, is that what you guys are seeing too? You guys are starting to use more of those? Everyone's a little resistant here, especially to um, especially to the group 15s to try to control some of those grasses because of the cost. But yeah. yeah, I'm just curious, you know, are you guys seeing the same thing there? Or are you guys doing something different? Yeah, group 15s being an absolute staple in growing a fall wheat crop here. And even, and so like Kat was saying earlier, a, a general higher rainfall rotation for us would be a three-year rotation of winter wheat followed by spring wheat followed by a lagoon. So mostly garbanzo beans or chickpea or uh, dry peas. Um, those historically prowls obviously being used on those on those uh, legumes, but we've kind of moved into that higher residual, lower solubility groups on wheat and in specifically like spring wheat. Mm-hmm. So spring wheat, one of our biggest struggles in this area is we just have, like she said earlier, we have such a wet winter that when spring hits, it's usually like one day there's six inches of snow on the ground and you haven't done anything in three months. And the next day your neighbor's got 600 acres seeded. And, and so group, group 15s, we've struggled in spring to get residual control of, of our grassy weeds with group 15s. Just we can't get them in the ground fast enough or um, complete or complete enough to beat germination. And so we've really kind of started to look at some of that lower solubility, higher residual chemistries, um, Broadax, Prowl, things like that, fall, Enzidua and Amplex, fall pre-plant um, in front of spring wheat to try to just hold over the winter and beat us to the field in the spring because it's we just have such a compacted, short spring planting season. Well, and even if you could do it ideally, so thinking about uh, the active and Zidua flex proxisulfone, it's a funky chemistry in that it will hang out in the top, let's say, inch for a very long time. Um, so to Sam's point is if so Zidua is only on label to do a post-plant pre in spring wheat, you can't go a pre-plant. And we just don't consistently. So think about like this year was a great example of Nothing, nothing that we did post-plant pre worked in our spring crops because we got exactly this much rain, right? Zero is the answer. Um, <laughs> it's like, if you get in the video, zero, zero. Um, so we're trying to think of ways that we can take advantage of our counter season rains and be able to set something. So pendomethylene is fairly insoluble, right? So it takes quite a bit of moisture to set that. Um, the odds that I get an inch of rain in the spring to set that chemistry are about 50-50. Um, so a lot of times we've gone to looking at what type of solubility and movement do our group threes have? Can we put them on in the fall? 
uh, something like um, proxisulfone, we have found is really good activity if we can set it in the fall and it will actually hold longer and work better if we set it in the fall versus in the spring because we get that little moisture. So it's kind of taking a lot of those same chemistries that the Midwest has, but how can we take advantage of them in our system? Um, one other thing to keep in mind is our soils are, tend to be very aesthetic. Um, your area probably limes. Our area thinks that lime is really a four-letter word and <laughs> very little, even though our soils are quite aesthetic. You, you don't realize how similar you guys are to us. So as you get to Again, this is just North Dakota's state geography or, or uh, soil fertility or whatever. However you want to look at this. You're in Jason's area, extremely high pH, high salts, 7.5 to 8 pH. All the Red River Valley, everything in the Prairie Pothole region is relatively high pH. Rarely do you see anything under 7. Mm-hmm. As you move west and as you move west and annual precip lowers, there's less tillage and because of less tillage, uh, you know, we, we, all that fertilizer application is happening within a very concentrated band and we're seeing stratified pH and, and outside of that, we're seeing just straight out low pH in certain areas. You actually need water to be able to flush some of those salts and bases and all of this. Exactly. And, and so, we know that liming's the answer, but liming is the four-letter word because I don't know how close a lime source is from you guys, but we can get it for free from sugar beet factories for us, but it's still, it still equates out to hundreds of dollars per acre to actually do buffer pH liming. And so, yes, is that the long-term answer for us? 100%. Is that what everyone does? Not even close. We would rather look at, hey, okay, can we put 30% more phosphorus in our starter to overcome some of the type of the iron that we see? Or should we look at different wheat and canola varieties that handle aluminum toxicity better? Yep. Yes. So that's so interesting. Yeah. Those We're, are the things that we look at. High iron as well. I think there's a relation to, well, there. There is. There's a direct relationship between, I mean, some of it is soil structure, some of it is how your soil is made, some of it is the acidity in the soil. But yeah, um, it, the reason I was asking is, especially with the Roundup Ready crops, we get a lot of, quote, micronutrient packages that contain iron and manganese. We are borderline toxic in both of those micros. So you apply something that has iron and manganese in our cropping systems, and it generally does more harm than good. But trying to explain that to somebody from the Midwest on, okay, cool. I get that you have a novel chelation, but you're bringing a mix into my area that has no business being here is pretty, pretty, right? It's like, I understand the agronomics of my region. Let me do my job and you tell me what you have that's interesting or not. Even within our own state, I don't think we realize some of those things. We know how to identify low pH by manganese toxicity or, uh, you know, that, but then... They also want to put that in a fertilizer source and, and be mixed into there. So, you know, they're within our own state, there might be a manganese and iron mixture that works good for a soybean producer on the east side, but you go west and it has no place being there. Interesting. I guess I had no idea. Like my family did time in a Red River Valley. So that's what I think that North Dakota is. <laughs> oh, there's, there's an incredible amount of difference one end to the other. And, and, and my, my background is from the Red River Valley of Minnesota, but close to Fargo. But yeah, now now I'm out west, and 
it's a different animal. Well, it's like even Montana isn't that similar. It really isn't that similar. So that's what's I think kind of blowing my mind about the North Dakota region is I I mean Mon- Montana is more on the basic side. It's more I mean you will find iron deficiencies there, things of that nature. Right. So interesting sidebar. <clears throat> so this summer uh, or the spring, I got together with a group of consultants that we we get together and brainstorm and come up with different stuff. And we had uh, a rep come in. His name is Francis Lyre. I went to college with him at NSU. He works for Hello Nature. So uh, we're sitting there talking about this product and Oli goes, you know what? I know someone who's got some data and I'll send it to you. And I said, well, that'd be great. Who is it? It's Kat Salois. I'm like, are you kidding me? So it was, it was stem type. Yeah. Yeah. Or a trainer or whatever. So yeah, the, I tell clean a company. Yep. So I'm like, there was this connection we had back in <laughs> April. And then we had the same weather that you just described for your June we got hot and dry and the yield potential just went whoop, right down the gopher hole. And there was no chance of doing some things that we were attempting to do, but yeah, small world. It's interesting. You should do so back to the grassy herbicides. The whole reason I had even gone out to that company was they had claimed, um, what do you call it? Reduced stress with herbicide applications. It is literally one of the few that I've found that kind of works. So, which we, which I don't know if that's the case for you, but the, that's a big problem for us is just the volatility and weather that we get spraying, spraying in the spring here. I don't know oh, if yeah. you guys get big 40 degree swings and freezing <laughs> oh, yeah. night trying to yeah. spray off. Oh, yeah. yeah. Inversions, uh, uh, big, big differences. Uh, we had a very uh, warm, low humidity year, and mm-hmm. we are so used to not to having humidity and things crop protection products working and we found out how big uh that how important that was in 2021 yeah what's humidity (laughs) i got i got 32 ounces of it right here (laughs) well i did have 32 (laughs) the humidity difference we've been going from the basin to here like why do things work in the basin and not here and you realize that that irrigated canopy will stay 70%, 80% 70%, 80% humidity, and we're 15. Yeah. Well, like, and you guys mentioned this, this on a on a past podcast about clethodon that I found super applicable to our region was was you were talking about guys trying to go out and fall for for uh, fall burndown with clethodon because the cost of glyphosate. Right. And the fact that it probably wouldn't work because your, you know, your stagnant daytime temperature wasn't averaging 50 degrees. And I don't think we've ever had a spring where it's above 50 when we're spraying and and that's also probably why you run a whole percent of oil plus right and that that was my point is you know you look at you look at grassy weed herbicide resistance and then you really start looking at what's your adjuvant what's your fertilizer package with that and you look over time on some of these mixes we've gotten we've had to get so hot and add so many things to these crop protection products to just make them kind of work. You know, clethodon being a great example of mm-hmm. having to add a gallon per hundred of oil and a bunch of fertilizer and maybe some sulfuric acid and a few other things. And yeah. you're still maybe 45% control, you know? Uh, so yeah, we're, we do obviously have some, some deep similarities. That's interesting. I know that is really, see, yeah. I- 
I would say that we would come do a trip to North Dakota, but let's be real. I'll come in June or somewhere it's warmer. We should swap fishing. Let's do it. Summer. Okay. <laughs> hey, we, we can do it. Yeah. Let, yeah let's do this. <laughs> that's, you know what? That's wherever, wherever you go, you, people have more similarities than they have differences. You just have to sit down and find them. And if it's, I mean, we're talking ag, but it, it does, it's not just ag, it's other stuff. And that, that's it. Where I used to work, everybody from the PNW, you don't understand. We're different out here. Yeah. Right? They say it all the time. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. And But it is. It's so different. And that's what makes it so unique and fun to talk to people from there. So. Yeah. Well, we don't have tornadoes or, or hurricanes, hurricanes or earthquakes. Yeah, we do get earthquakes. Don't really have any poisonous spiders or snakes or anything. Rattlesnakes. Oh, my gosh. We, we have a few rattlesnakes. <laughs> But I, I do tell everybody, if this sucks, don't move here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, if you ever get a chance to go out to that part of uh, the United States, it's, it's absolutely everything. It's built to be a um, get out, uh, do a little research. Uh, I believe we can find uh, both of you on Twitter, um, and we'll post that in the show notes. And uh, if you got more interest in the McGregor Company, it's uh, something you should look up because I, I just, I'm a nerd like that. I, I like to go and look at different places, even in Minnesota, even in Wisconsin, because it's something that's a little different. And you always run into interesting people and scenarios and the cropping. And uh, that that's, I don't know, that just keeps my interest in, in my own area, the nag. Yeah. Raising, they're raising 200 bushel wheat out there. Man, I think we can hit, we, we can try for 90 here, you know, 85, 90, just right. to see. Because it's well, a- I will typically throw down is uh, currently one of our growers holds the North American yield record for winter wheat on 17 inches of rain, 191 bushel dryland winter wheat. That's pretty impressive. Holy smokes. Holy shit. <laughs> and, uh, and then what was, oh, well, it was just a really good part of the field. Okay, well, it was a good part of the field. Um, however, the entire 250-acre field went 170 bushel. So you guys have wheat yields that rival corn yields in North Dakota. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe someone in Iowa or Ohio or Illinois, one of the Midwestern states, can't say that. But us in North Dakota, we those wheat yields sound higher than our average corn yields. <laughs> right. Well, it's one of the so the irrigated part is the one who holds the the record for irrigated. I think they're at 212, and the growers one that I chat with fairly often. He's pissed that he only got 112 or 212. <laughs> he's like, no, there was still more on the table. It's like I think tough to please. It's tough. Retail's tough business. That kind of that kind of <laughs> sounds like a fun group of growers to work with. Oh, yeah. No, it's pretty impressive when they can sit there and round off all of their tissue testing numbers to you. Like, hmm, dang, gonna have to study this one a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got farmers that'll challenge you. I, I like this. This is that keeps the knife sharp. Right. Yes, it does. It does. For <laughs> when I was uh, with Jason coming out to the account manager group, it's. To me, it's always the most intimidating to sit in front of the guys who will call you out day in and day out, right? Like yes. um, industry will likely not do that to me, but my internal account managers will. So I get more nervous to talk to them than any other group. <laughs> so I got another side by story. Uh, oh, wow. Sidebar here. 
So we, we did the meeting, uh, my portion, your portion, we're going through it. The drive out there was spectacular. My wife came along. I bought a ticket. She came along with me just to go on this little trip. Uh, you're out in the PNW, the Palouse, uh, you're seeing all this stuff. And the building we were in, you're, you got like this amphitheater on the screen and everybody sits up. And so it's not like a, a normal meeting or a shop. And uh, your building is fantastic. And before we left the place, I told my wife, I left retail because I was done and my wife was ready for me done. I said, I would come back to retail if this is where I could work. Just the, the I'm not, I'm serious. The layout, all this type of thing. So I'm, I'm standing around. I got a bottle of water. Next thing you know, I got to use the men's room. So I'm in the men's room and uh, this guy comes in. I start I'm like chatting him up, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, we started talking and pretty soon it's all about history and how this started and the town. And there was like, I think there was a sheep story in there because of how it started. And here, what is it, Ian? That's Alex. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, so here's the owner and president or whatever. I don't know who he is, you know? And I'm just, oh yeah, I'm the, this is great. Tell me more. And oh, he did. I mean, he gave me like, boom, 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 boom. And everybody's like, so we shook hands and took off, you know, whatever. And he's like, you know who that was? I'm like, no, but he's really interesting. Yeah, he's the, he's the owner. He's the, I was like, <laughs> down to earth, just really, really fun conversation. I mean, he was interested that I was there interested in you guys, your area, your agriculture. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Sam probably offers a little bit of a different perspective, but to me, that's incredibly real and genuine, right? Like that, it was. that I have to question that uh, the owners know my kid's name. They could pick her out of a crowd. To me, that's important. Yep. That's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. Well, in this area is just small. Um, egg is small. Egg retail is small. The PNW is small, right? So the way I think about it, even if it wasn't all in the McGregor company, odds are high if we had eight different people here and we were committed to being in the Pacific Northwest. So like Sam, what are the odds that you leave the PNW? Probably not real high. Right. Like, I don't know what it would take for me to leave the PNW. So we may trade shirts, but maybe, I'm... maybe for a day or two, ice fishing in a, in a heated shanty. <laughs> <laughs> there, we, there we go well we got like we're, we're working a trade out here we got to get on some rivers do some fishing out there we talked about that before we started recording and like oh man that'd be so much fun right no you're just gonna have to make it happen but it's probably certain areas of north dakota right where when you're in that region you're committed you're not leaving um so it's just a, a different way of treating people because you know that even if one of us is not working at this company, we will be in agriculture in the PNW. So even though, like I said, people trade jobs, we still don't trade regions or locations. And, and even even more than that are growers. Like, oh my gosh, we're on the fifth, sixth, maybe seventh generation on some folks that that we've worked with since the day they started was the day we started. And and you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to work and see if you guys transition and work with their sons. And, and that's just the coolest thing about ag, I think is the, the family farm side of it. You're seeing a lot less of that, but it, if there's anything specific to the PNW, I'd like to say it's the, the heritage of our family farms and how they got their start out here and, and really, really stuck to it and stuck around. And there's still quite a few of them. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I can see we're, this, this always happens. 
great conversation, rolling over the hour mark. It's all good. But I think the most fun part about this that not everyone listening has seen this yet, but you guys are drinking a beer that's right up our alley. So <laughs> it's happy hour. We're drinking beer. Why don't you guys share what you picked out for beer? I've got, or we have, uh, the Sierra Nevada Hazy Little Thing, one of my favorites. Ooh, yes. Two thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> clap, clap, <laughs> clapping. <laughs> and the beer picker, they also, if I believe, they make a hazy big thing, which is their imperial hazy that is like a purpley, darker blue can. It's also yep. delightful. I have seen that. Yep. Yep. I've had that too. That's really good too. Hmm. And I like that you picked it an IPA because although I am not an IPA drinker, it is the thing to do in the PNW. Yes, it is. So so IPAs are the thing in the PNW. That so I'm booking the I'm booking the tickets right now. <laughs> you you talk, I'll book I'll book plane tickets. <laughs> so is there does anyone know the words bush and light in the PNW then? Washington. Yeah. So I mean, look that up too. Like for, for his classes, I love to think the PNW is Pullman is a college town. I think it was number two party school in the nation. <laughs> so there might be a few few bush lights hat then. Hey, when it's 105 degrees out and you're bailing alfalfa, nothing's better than a bush light. The colder it is. <laughs> Good point. So so everyone thinks of us as like this anti-bush light, but really because of this measuring everything against the bush light i think we're really putting some light on yeah. and, and i and i think everyone thinks of bush light as a midwestern thing but obviously it's not <laughs> no i think anheuser bush uh that their their largest hop farm is is in idaho oh really yeah yeah and i think we do a fair amount of work with them let's not judge us on that yeah don't judge us <laughs> That's cool too. Yeah, we're, we 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 you know we grow a lot of barley that goes to Anheuser Busch contracts. There you go. No, we have no shortage of good beer. You guys come on out and uh, can, and we'll can, can test. That's that these that Sam is dead on. That's absolutely <laughs> right. Oh, well, we gotta work on those tickets. <laughs> we need bigger sponsors. We have, we have, yeah, you hear this? Potential sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> they need to be able to travel in person. <laughs> there you go. So we better we better share some about the beer we got. So we got beer, gift that, beer, gifted beer that came all the way from Kansas via Austin and Christy Sundin. Yep, yeah, they uh, were down there visiting some friends over the holidays and uh, stopped at a place. Uh, it's Tallgrass Tap House. Uh, it's uh, fairly popular, I know, in Kansas. Uh, my brother and sister in law knew exactly where that was at, and uh, yeah, we got. Uh, Two, well, it's a quart size beer. They're big cans. Or yep, and we each got a different one. And we were told that okay, this is yours, Kyle, and this is yours, Jason. Yeah, they were picked out specifically. So yeah. I, I don't know why that is, but I don't either. Mine is uh, called Beauregard Pale Ale. It's got an alligator on it, uh, and it says, "You never know what's lurking in the depths of Wildcat Creek." And it's uh, yeah, it's a pale ale. It's super, it's super good. It's super large. It's kind of a unique can. We'll have to get some pictures of it posted up here on the, uh, on the page. It is uh, five and a half ABV. I like the fact that this was brewed on the 23rd of uh, December and uh, really smooth, uh, good ale. 
And it is, mine is a 3.6 BLE. <laughs> of course, using your method of math. So, well, it's 32 ounces. Yeah. Right? So, you can't deny the volume container. Here, so, you, friend. yeah, you've owned three and a little over three and a half bush lights. Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty fair jag in one like, can. Math on? We, we always work on that math. So, oh. so, so, from the same brewery, from this tall grass uh, tap house and wherever in Kansas you were saying it was from. Uh, uh, they got a couple, I think Manhattan. Yeah, uh, they got a couple places. Go. Yep. Yeah. So the one they picked out for me was called Double Trouble. And I, I'm assuming it's some kind of IPA. Yeah. And and I know, uh, so my math is different on this Bushlight equivalent. So Kath, I don't know, have you uh, heard us talk about the Bushlight equivalent before? No, that's why I was chuckling. Okay, so that's why I asked about Bushlight earlier. Is Bushlight is the measuring stick? Okay, that is your content. Yep. Okay. So, so we've come up with a score called the BLE, the Bushlight equivalent. And Bushlight is we figured at the four point one percent alcohol by volume. And so instead of looking at IBU or mouthfeel or color or whatever the hell else craft beer drinkers look at i mean we like all the craft beers but i mean we're all agronomists in the end right you want to know the active ingredient the percent concentration and so we're comparing percent alcohol by volume to percent alcohol by volume and so that's the only measuring stick we use and instead of just saying it's a you know an abv versus an abv we got to go what's what's the beer around <laughs> us and everywhere that everyone compares to well it's bush light so that's a 4.1%. So it's compared there. And, and I don't care about the canister size. I mean, it could be a, a pounder. It could be a 12-ounce can. It could be a growler, whatever. They're, they're all different sizes. I'm just looking purely at percent by volume compared to percent by volume. And so if I were to measure this one, this one's a 7% by volume. If I did that math earlier, if I was comparing bush, bush light to that, I think it was like I was like in the 2.6 range, something like that, if I remember right. Or 2.6, it'd be 1.6, excuse me. Yeah, 1.6. 1.6. So just a little over one and a half bush lights. But Jason likes to measure this, and we, we drank an entire quart of this. So he's measuring to the full amount. And so <laughs> if we were to do that, I was drinking more like 4.6 4. 4. cans or 4.5 cans of bush lights. So it was a yeah. 4.5 BLE. So it's the joke. It's, it's the joke we do. We put it up on our website. Even it's a my my way of doing math. I'll say this is the BLE score. His way of doing math is the BLE score. And I'm sure most people, if they opened up the website and looked at it, they go, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> Some, sometimes podcast episodes, the Bud Light equivalent it took to make them. <laughs> we don't want to see that number. <laughs> oh. Factor in the little cans too, so that you could have the in, entire audience uh, Bud Light equivalent of the podcast. <laughs> well, I've I've been out a couple places. Uh, we spent some time in Moscow, Idaho, me and my friends, and uh, go around. And that was the funnest part was just sampling different things out there. It's uh, it's very unique, and it was a great place to go to and see Ag and your guys' company, and it was. Uh, I'd go back in a heartbeat. We're, we're trying to uh, just, just the way things have been. It's been kind of crazy, you know, with COVID and all kinds yeah. of different stuff, but. I know it feels like a, a tidal wave in some ways, right? That we're going from a hundred to zero to a hundred. Again, I was telling Sam that this week I'm in the office 
And then if I think about the next eight weeks, I'm on the road seven of the eight weeks for more than three nights, which is really crazy for like, I don't get on a plane that often for my job. Right. Like it's, it's kind of rare. Um, I do a lot of around the, the region, but that is a whole lot of travel. So evidently I need to get better at saying no or picking things, <laughs> but it also feels I like. So- <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this is awesome. So you guys can hang on afterwards here, but I, I think, uh, yep. Better beer. We talked to our BLE, we BS up and, and, and just one more time again, guys, uh, you guys are on social media. You're both on Twitter, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, so we can, we can both find you on, uh, on Twitter, I think, Cat, you're like TMC Cat. Yep. So the McGregor Company, TMC underscore Cat. Yep. And then Sam, what are you on Twitter again? Find you. Oh, you're just Sam Sam Kimmel. Your name. I'm just Sam Kimmel. Just plain old Jane. <laughs> hey, that that's okay. On most social media, I'm just Kyle Oki. That's all I do. But on on uh yeah Twitter, I'm Oki from Muskogee. <laughs> how how close to Muskogee are you? Not even remotely close. Not even close. Not even close. So, but it was a good way to, people have screwed up how to say my last, or pronounce my last name. And so that was a good way to, you can't not figure that out at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so anyways, thank you guys again for coming on yes, with us. Thanks so much. And, and for everyone listening, we're going to say cheers for this episode and we're going to catch you guys next week. Cheers. Happy hour. So cheers. Thank you, Jason and Kyle.